Well, as I'm sure many, if not all of you know, I'm a huge fan of uh, 19th century French poetry. And uh, so I want to start this morning by a line uh, from a 19th century French poet named Charles Pierre Baudelaire, which is the proper French pronunciation, of course. Uh, He said this, The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. The devil's best trick is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. Now, about 100 years later, somebody who I actually am a fan of, uh, C.S. Lewis, wrote in the preface to Screwtape Letters, and if you're not familiar with the book uh, Screwtape Letters, excellent book. C.S. Lewis is really, really excellent uh, because of his ability to take complex things and make them simple through narrative. So, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote as Screwtape, who is this demon who's advising his nephew and uh, mentee, uh, Wormwood, on how to tempt and derail this Christian whose, care, whose name is the patient, yes? Oh, microphone. Excuse me. Oh, yeah, flip that off. There we go. Hello? Okay. So, Screwtape Letters, as I was saying. Screwtape is writing to Wormwood, and uh, he's advising him how to uh, throw off this Christian named the patient uh, that he's trying to tempt. And in the, actually, the preface to that book, C.S. Lewis writes this. He says, There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils, who are demons. One is to disbelieve. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They are equally pleased by both errors and hail a materialist or a magician with the same delight. C.S. Lewis, Lewis is saying that devils, demons, are equally as happy if you disbelieve in their existence or if you believe in them so strongly that you're hyper-focused on them. If you're a materialist, you don't believe that the demons exist, or you're a magician, you're obsessed with the existence of devils. The best trick the devil ever pulled is to persuade you that he doesn't exist. So why is that a good trick? Why does that make any sense? Well, you can imagine easily why that would be a good trick. Hopefully, you lock your doors. Burglars would love it if you didn't think that burglars exist, because if burglars didn't exist, you wouldn't lock your doors, and you'd leave your wallet out. Uh, You wouldn't lock your car door, and burglars would have a heyday, because if you didn't believe burglars existed, thieves, you would put down your defenses against burglars, and they would have a heyday. So burglars would love it if you didn't believe they exist. Same thing with schemers, scammers. You know, if someone called you, hopefully, if someone called you on the phone this afternoon and said, hey, you know, you went a free month-long trip to Hawaii. All I need is your credit card number and Social Security number to verify that you're the winner. If you didn't believe in scammers, you'd gladly give out that information because you won a free trip to Hawaii. But you're intelligent enough to believe in scammers, and so you put up defenses against scammers, and hopefully, if somebody calls you this afternoon and asks for your credit card and social security number, don't give it to them. Scammers exist, okay? So if, scammer, if you didn't believe that scammers exist, scammers would love that. They'd have a heyday because you put down your defenses against scammers. The devil loves it when we don't believe that he exists because if we don't believe that he exists, we put down our defenses and then we make ourselves vulnerable. Well, today we're going to look at a text. We're going to continue on in 1 John. If you remember, as I'm preaching, we're working our way through the book of 1 John. We're going to look at a text in 1 John that's going to teach us that we need to detect and resist 
anti-Christian influences by relying on our ability and incentive to do so. We need to detect and resist anti-Christian influences by relying on our ability and incentive to do so. So, uh, go ahead and open your Bible to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. And we're going to look at a big chunk, verses 18, all the way through uh, 27. Enjoy at this point. Yeah, if you could just put the whole thing up, is that too much to ask rather than that selected part for now? 1 John 2, 18 through 27. Follow along with me as I read, and we'll get it up on the screen here in just a second. John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, But the the anointing you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as as his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So if you were here and you can remember back to August, we looked at actually just the first few words of this passage as we started to work through this passage. The first phrase, children, it is The last hour. What that means is that we live in the final phase of God's project of redemption. If you want to think of the driving force in the plot of human history, it's this project of redemption that God started immediately after the fall and that will one day consummate when He returns and everything is perfected and He ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. This project of redemption started in Genesis 3 and ends at the book of Revelation. It's the driving force throughout all of human history. And that project has several what I'll call phases. And those phases are ever-expanding. So this project of redemption started with one man, with Abraham, or it really got going with one man, with Abraham. And through that one man, it expanded to one family. And through that one family, it expanded to one nation as that family became a nation, the Israelites, while in slavery in Egypt. And through that one nation came a Messiah that now made this project of redemption available to everyone in all nations. One man, then one family, then one nation, then through a Messiah that came from that nation, all the nations of the earth, all families of the earth, salvation is now available to all people. We live in the final phase of this ever-expanding project. And so what John says in 1 John 2.18, when he says it is the last hour, he means this is the last stage of God's project of redemption. And in this final stage, any day could be the last day. Any hour could be the last hour. We won't know what day is the last day until the last day. We won't know what day is the last hour until the last hour. So, 
we need to be aware of this fact and we need to um, pick our eyes up from the tyranny of the present. We can't constantly be preoccupi- preoccupied with what is ever, with all the things that are constantly in our face. We need to pick our eyes up, we need to get a bigger perspective, and we need to set our priorities and live our lives accordingly. That brings us to 1 John 2:18b through 27. In the rest of this passage, John points out one issue in particular that deserves our attention in light of the fact that we live in this last phase of God's project of redemption. The presence of many, many antichrists, as John says, and the potential damage and influence of what I'll call anti-Christianity. I really think that's what John is getting at in this passage. He's talking about the potential danger, the presence of anti-Christians, just as there are Christians, there are anti-Christians, just as there is the message of Christianity, so too there is the message of anti-Christianity, and we need to be aware of this, and so live in light of it, so we can detect it, and we can resist it. So here's what we're going to do. In this long passage, John talks about this issue by weaving together two chords. One chord talking about Christians, what they're like, and sort of what our defense is to anti-Christianity, and then he talks about these many antichrists, okay? So what we're going to do over the course of the next two weeks, this week and next week, is we're going to pull those two chords apart, and we're going to look at each one in turn. So this week we're going to start by looking at the antichrist chord, and then next week we're going to look at the Christian chord. So now, Jordan, you can throw that slide up there. Okay, so what I've done is I've pulled that chord out and and put it together so we can focus on just those parts of this passage that focus on the antichrist. Let me read them for you. Starting in verse 18, as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's the chord we're going to look at this week. And what I'm going to suggest to you is that John is making four points in those verses. Here they are. First, that antichrists exist. Second, that antichrists exist in the church. Third, antichrists can be seen by their teaching and their actions. And fourth, antichrist claims are false and dangerous. Let me repeat those for you just in case you're trying to write them down. The four points that John is making with this Antichrist chord is first, that Antichrists exist. Second, that they exist in the church. Third, they can be seen by their teaching and their actions. And fourth, that Antichrist's claims are false and dangerous. And we're going to deal with each of these four points. So first... Antichrist exists. John makes this point primarily in verse 18b, which is at the beginning of that slide up there for you. John says, As you have heard, Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Now, I I think that most of us probably have some relatively vague concept of the Antichrist. Even in our culture, even if you're not a Christian, I think we live in a time where people have this vague concept of the Antichrist. And he is this powerful, apocalyptic, evil figure that's going to come near the end of time. People have this general sense of that. Whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, we generally have this concept of the Antichrist, right? 
But my guess is that even though most of you have that concept, most of you don't spend much time thinking about the Antichrist because you don't think of him as much of a threat. First of all, he's coming in the future, and despite what some people may suggest now, there doesn't seem to be anybody that quite fits the bill of what we have in our mind as the Antichrist. And just so that you know, throughout church history, uh, for 2,000 years, there have always been people that said, the Antichrist is this person, that person, this person, that person. It's going on today as well. Most of you probably aren't convinced by that, and so you don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about the Antichrist. Well, what I think is really interesting, and I discovered this while doing my study, and I was fascinated by this, is that the word or title Antichrist is actually only in the Bible five times. And it's only in First and Second John. It's not in Revelation. It's not in any other book. John is the only one who uses that word or title. It's only used five times. And of those five times, three are in our passage today. So 60% of what the New Testament has to specifically and explicitly say about, the, about Antichrist come from our passage today. And what's remarkable about that is, in this passage, I think what John is trying to do is shift our attention away from the Antichrist, this powerful, evil, apocalyptic character, and focus on the many Antichrists who have already come. I think that's sort of ironic, given our vague sense of who the Antichrist is, that 60% of the time when John is talking about, 60% of the time when the New Testament is specifically and explicitly talking about Antichrist, rather than talking about this powerful, apocalyptic character who's going to come, John is trying to shift our attention away from that to the many Antichrists who have already come. Now, Scripture talks about the Antichrist, okay? So it's not as if... Um, that figure doesn't exist and we're entirely wrong in our thinking. Even though that language doesn't exist, the, the prophet Daniel talks about this sort of figure. Jesus talks about this sort of figure in Matthew 24 and 25. Paul talks about the man of lawlessness. And Revelation, with its reference to the beast, talks about this sort of figure. So there will be an Antichrist. But John is trying to shift our attention away from that. In John 18a, I'm going to paraphrase for, or 18b rather, John is saying, as you have heard the Antichrist is coming, you all know that, right? Well, I don't want you to focus on that. So now many Antichrists have already come. Don't worry so much about, not that you shouldn't worry at all, but don't worry so much about the Antichrist. Realize that many Antichrists have already come. Ironically, by making Antichrists common, he emphasizes their importance. You see that? By making them common and saying, you don't have to worry about this big, powerful, apocalyptic figure who's going to come, but I want you to focus on the people who are here now. He emphasizes the importance that we pay attention to this issue. Antichrists, anti-Christianity, anti-Christians are a reality now, and that is what I think John is trying to direct our attention to. Which leads me to John's next point. Antichrists are closer than you think. Antichrists exist in the church. John makes this point in verse 19. He says, they, that is the Antichrist, went out from us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, what does that mean? When, when John says uh, they were a part of us and then they went out from us, us is the church. There's some debate about whether or not um, they went out from the sort of apostolic church in Jerusalem or the church that John was writing to. It's really a moot point. One way or another, these people were a part of the church, and they went out from the church. If they went out, what does that mean? That at one point they were in. So these are people who were in the church. 
And what's even more interesting about this verse, I think, is John says that they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Now, what does that mean? If they had not left, it may not have been plain that these people were antichrist. You see that? It went out so that it would become obvious. So these people are in the church, and prior to their leaving, it was not obvious that these people were antichrists. They were anti-Christians who believed anti-Christianity. He goes on later in verse 26 to say, I write these things about those who are trying to deceive you. So these people existed in the church. It was not obvious that they were antichrists. And while they were a part of the church, they had or at least were trying to have some sort of influence in the church. I want you to think about that for a second because consider the world in which John was writing. John was writing this letter late in the first century. And by that time, there was intense Roman persecution, official Roman persecution of the church in the world at that time. There were also, Paul, uh, John was probably writing this letter from Ephesus, which was a tremendously idolatrous town. And so you'd think, because of our vague concept of the Antichrist, that if John was going to write about the Antichrist, he would be talking about some powerful, corrupt Roman official. Or he would be talking about some uh, cultic pagan priest who was trying to steal away Christians or trying to influence them. But John isn't talking about those sorts of people. John is talking about people who are in the church, who it was not obvious that they were Antichrist, and that who are tr- these people are trying to have influence in the church. I think that's remarkable. So you transfer that forward to today. We have no shortage, especially in the place we live, of corrupt, powerful government officials. And so when we talk about the Antichrist, or if you spend any time thinking about the Antichrist, or those people who talk about the Antichrist, those are probably the sorts of people they talk about. Oh, it's this guy or that guy, these powerful, corrupt people that exist in government, locally or federally, right? I think the closest thing that we have to the pagan cult of the first century is pop culture. <laughs> and there are plenty of powerful, influential people in pop culture who speak eloquently and powerfully and deceptively and try to teach us the way we should think, what we should value, what our priorities should be like, what our relationships should be like. And you'd think that those were the sort of people who would be the Antichrist. Those are not the sorts of people that John is talking about. John's talking about people in the church. These are regular church people who believe lies and teach lies. Maybe they're evil. Maybe they've just been deceived themselves. They believe anti-Christianity, and so they teach anti-Christianity. What all this means is that we need to be careful about the teaching we consume. We need to be aware of the fact that Antichrist exists and that they go to church. Yes, the Antichrist is coming. I'm not denying that. Scripture talks about that. John's not denying that. But he's shifting our attention and saying, Beware, many Antichrists have already come. They are regular people who go to church that believe lies and teach lies. Some are evil, some are just deceived, but if we do not acknowledge the reality, then we put down our defenses and we leave ourselves vulnerable. You see that? And that leads us to John's third point, and this is really the heart of what he's going to say. This is the heart of the first chord that we're going to look at. That Antichrist can be seen by their teaching and their actions. Antichrist can be seen by their teaching and their actions. Uh, John makes this point in verses 19 and 26, which we've already looked at a little bit, but also in verse 22. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. Jordan, I'm going to have you go ahead and throw up the slide of Fig Newtons. <laughs> 
There you go. Okay? I'm going to use Fig Newtons to illustrate this point. Here's why. I want you to look at this package of Fig Newtons. Interestingly enough, here's a fun fact. Did you know that Fig Newtons are just called Newtons now? I didn't know that, as you can see by the packaging. They got rid of the fig because they make several varieties. So there you go. You learned something important in church today. Okay? Now, if you just look at the package of Fig Newtons, that package screams health food, doesn't it? You see the little, you see the little leaf on the tea, and those are real artistic figs there behind the, the cookies. And you can even see the seeds in the, in the cookies, and they're 100% whole grain, and they're made with real fruit. Fig Newtons scream that they're health food. I've got news for you. Fig Newtons are not health food. Fig Newtons are cookies. They're junk food. Now, Fig Newtons may be... Uh, now, some of you may want to fight me on this, okay? Fig Newtons are not health food. I love Fig Newtons. But Fig Newtons are not health food. They may be more healthy than Oreos or Chips Ahoy, but they are not health food. No nutritionist is going to say, listen, you need to make a few steps in your health. You need to eat less fruit and more Fig Newtons. Nobody's going to tell you that, okay? Now, what's dangerous about Fig Newtons is this is the way they're packaged, and they're delicious. If you don't think they're delicious, you're terribly mistaken. Fig Newtons are phenomenal. <laughs> you guys, a lot of you, I'm sure, know Brian Regan, and he, says, he, he tells a joke about Fig Newtons. I eat Fig Newtons by the sleeve. Well, you and me both, brother. When they used to come in sleeves, that's the way to eat them, right? The problem with Fig Newtons is that packaging does not withstand scrutiny. Looks healthy, isn't healthy. If you were to dig into the ingredients and the nutrition facts and the calories, I'm not a nutritionist, and how all that equation works out, Fig Newtons are not healthy. That's the bottom line. And here's what I'm going to suggest to you, that we Christians don't eat enough theological kale. We eat a lot of theological Fig Newtons. We don't eat enough theological kale. We eat far too many theological Fig Newtons. Unhealthy food that tastes good and is advertised as healthy is dangerous. Unhealthy theology that sounds spiritual, that sounds biblical, that tells us what we want to hear is dangerous. And John is telling us that that sort of theology, that Fig Newton theology, exists. So we need to be careful. We can't just look at the packaging and trust it. We have to dig a little bit deeper. Jordan, you can take that slide down and go back to the text. I want to remind you of Satan's two recorded encounters with people in Scripture. One is with Eve in the garden in Genesis 3, and one is in the desert with Jesus when he's tempting Jesus. And in both of those instances, now Scripture didn't exist at the time that, uh, that Satan was talking to Eve, but in that case, Satan tried, or he, he took what God said and changed it just a little bit, but Satan quoted God. And think about how audacious this is. Tempting Jesus in the desert, Satan quoted Scripture to Jesus to try to deceive him. In both instances where we see Satan directly encountering people and trying to deceive them, he quotes God, he quotes Scripture. Satan is clever enough to conceal his true identity and motive. Uh, 2 Corinthians 11.14 says that even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Just because somebody quotes scripture, sounds spiritual, speaks Christian, says the things that Christians say, does not mean that they're teaching the truth. Satan is a prime example of that. 
And John is not the only one who makes this point in the New Testament. This is a theme in the New Testament. I want to look at a couple of their uh, scripture passages and really just read them to drive this point home. First is 2 Timothy chapter 4. Go ahead and turn there, 2 Timothy chapter 4. Second Timothy 4, we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Paul writing to Timothy says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebu- rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming, listen to this, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul is talking about us, church people. There will come a time when we don't want to hear the truth anymore. We want to hear what tastes good. And so what we're going to do is accumulate for ourselves teachers who preach messages that sound good, that have the right packaging, but aren't the truth. They taste delicious, but they're not health food. Turn to 2 Peter. 2 Peter. Really, we could read 2 Peter, all of chapter 2. It's a great chapter talking about false prophets and false teachers, but what I want to look is something that uh, Peter says in chapter 3, towards the end. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Peter says this, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks of them, of these matters. There are some things in them, listen to this, there are some things in Paul's writing in Scripture that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. There are parts of Scripture that are difficult to understand, that can be perverted, that can be changed, that can be twisted to say things that Scripture doesn't really say. I once had a professor, I can't remember whether it was in college or seminary, who said, Scripture can be used to teach anything, even the truth. You can take Scripture out of context and twist it to make it say all sorts of things. So John is talking about this. Paul is talking about this. Peter is talking about this. We need to be extremely careful. It's not enough for a teacher to speak our language, to speak Christian. It's not enough for a teacher to say something we like. It's not enough for a teacher to quote Scripture. We need to be very careful that what we believe is the truth. We need to be extremely careful about this. Now, at this point, I'm going to give you a word of caution because I think the temptation like a lot of sermons, is to apply this to somebody else. Because I'm talking about false teachers and people who twist Scripture. You're probably going, yeah, I know a guy like that. It's somebody that somebody else listens to. That is always a temptation, but it's, it's a terrible mistake here. What I'm going to encourage you to do is, for the sake of your own health, be more careful and critical of the teachers you listen to than you are of the teachers that other people listen to. 
be more careful and critical of the teachers that you listen to than the teachers that other people listen to. That's not really going to do you much good. You're not going to get healthy by being critical of what other people eat. That's not the way to get healthy. You get healthy by being careful about what you eat, and that's what I'm encouraging you to do. Please, I'm sure that you have people that are coming to your mind. Yeah, I know guys like that. Don't worry about them if you don't listen to them. Think about the people that you listen to. The books you read, the studies you do, be very careful. Don't be deceived by three ingredients. Bible quotation, Christian jargon, Christianese, and a message that you like. Now those three ingredients don't necessarily mean that a message is wrong. Just because somebody quotes scripture and speaks our language and preaches a message that you like doesn't mean it's wrong. But it doesn't mean that it's right either. You need to be careful. You need to scrutinize these things. We're going to talk more about this next week when we switch to the other chord and we look at the things that John says we have as a defense against anti-Christians and anti-Christianity. But we need to carefully, biblically scrutinize everything our teachers say. The Holy Spirit and the Word of God are tremendous defenses in this fight, and so we need to be careful to use them. Here's the good news. This is one way to tell the difference between good teachers and bad teachers. Good teachers will welcome scrutiny. Bad teachers say, take my word for it. Be wary of people who say, it's in there, take my word for it. Be wary of people like that. Paul is a perfect example of a good teacher. Throughout the book of Acts, we see how Paul conducts himself on his missionary journeys. And his normal way of operating was to go into a synagogue. And what scripture says, uh, Acts chapter 17, verses 2 and 3 is an example of this. Paul would go into a synagogue and he would use scripture to prove that Jesus was the Christ. That's the way that Paul operated. He would go into the synagogue and he would use Scripture to prove to these people that Jesus was the Christ. And Scripture commends a certain group of people to whom Paul did this in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, the Bereans. Acts chapter 17, 11 says this about the Bereans. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. That's the sort of believer that the New Testament commends. It's the sort that listens eagerly, listens with eagerness, but examines the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul goes into a synagogue, he argues from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ, and these people, the Bereans, scrutinize what Paul says using the scriptures to think for themselves and see if these things were were so. That's commendable Christianity. That's Christianity that uh, has a strong defense against being duped or deceived by anti-Christians and anti-Christianity. Antichrists can be seen by their teaching. They will not hold up to close scrutiny. In order to eat a healthy diet, you have to scrutinize what you eat beyond the packaging. Another thing that I've had several of this week that I love is fudgesicles. Well, right on the box of fudgesicles says fat-free. Fudgesicles are fat-free. Fig Newtons are made with real fruit and have 100% whole grain. They've even got seeds in them. McDonald's is made from 100% pure beef. If all you do is worry about the packaging, you are going to be deceived. You need to have closer scrutiny. Now, Antichrist can also be seen by what they do. And we don't have a whole lot of time to get into this, but John makes this point in 1 John 2.19. Remember, it was their going out that made it obvious that they were not a part of the church. They went out from us. 
And this is a general New Testament principle that you can test and see good teachers versus false teachers by testing their fruit. That's the New Testament language. Don't take my word for it. Okay, look at Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 through 20, when Jesus himself teaches this principle. We need to be careful to test fruit, not just what's being said, but also what's being done. And this is a danger of teachers in our day because we don't know many of the teachers that we listen to in our day. Okay, I love... John Piper and Tim Keller, and I really love William Lane Craig, and I have every reason to believe that they're great guys, that they treat their wives great, that they're good in board meetings, and that when they get down from the pulpit or they're not on the radio, they're good, but I don't know. I don't know. I can't test their fruit, okay? So I'm not telling you that they're bad people. I'm telling you to be careful. Be careful. The New Testament says that we can see these people by their fruit, and many of the teachers that you listen to you see from afar, and it's easy to look good from afar, okay? We can't do that, so we need to be careful. Now, at this point, I want to issue another caution because two things kept coming back to my mind as I was preparing this sermon. One was the Salem witch trials, and another was Bobby Boucher's mama. You guys seen Waterboy, right? Okay? Waterboy. <laughs> Waterboy is a great movie. Uh, uh, I, I'll confess, you know, I like history more now than I used to, but I don't know a whole lot about the Salem Witch Trials, but I've read The Crucible and seen the movie, okay? Uh, <coughs> uh, I'm not suggesting that sort of response to this, okay? I'm not saying we start Antichrist trials. We have Salem Witch Trial-like Antichrist trials, where we're, everything's the devil, everything's the devil, that's a witch. Or Bobby Boucher's mama, who says that everything is the devil. There's one scene in that movie where... I think she's in the hospital and she's sleeping and she's snoring. And as she snores, she just goes, devil, 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 devil. Because she said everything was the devil. Okay. Remember what C.S. Lewis said. There are two dangers, disbelieving, but also paying too much attention to devils. So we need to find some balance here. I'm not suggesting any sort of witch hunt. What I'm saying is that you need to be careful. I'm encouraging you to think for yourself, to scrutinize these things with Scripture. You have the Holy Spirit. You can do it. Please be careful and think for yourself. That leads me to the final point that we're going to make today, and I'll close for this. We need to be careful for the sake of our own health. Antichrist's claims are false and dangerous. John makes this point in verses 22 and 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. This is not a non-issue. This is not theological quibbling. Your spiritual health is at stake here. For the people that believe these things that John was talking about, no one who denies the Son has the Father. Their very relationship with God was at stake. Denying the truth doesn't get you anywhere because denying the truth doesn't change the truth and believing lies is unhealthy. Denying the truth doesn't get you anywhere because denying the truth doesn't change the truth and believing lies is unhealthy. Fig Newtons are cookies. Whether you like it or not, whether you're duped by the packaging or not, Fig Newtons are cookies. They're not healthy. But if you choose to believe the packaging, if you choose to say, well, I like Fig Newtons, and they say they're made with 100% real fruit, so I'm going to stop eating real fruit and just start eating Fig Newtons, you're going to be unhealthy. Denying the truth about Fig Newtons doesn't get you anywhere because denying the truth about Fig, fig Newtons doesn't change the truth about Fig Newtons, and believing lies is unhealthy. 
Scripture teaches us that a lot. Scripture teaches us the truth about a lot of things. Some of the most important things that Scripture teaches us the truth about are about God, about ourselves, about this universe in which we live. And there may be some things about God that you don't like. You may want God to be differently than He is. Scripture may tell you some things about yourself that you don't like. You may want to be differently than what Scripture. You may want to be someone different than who Scripture says you are. You may want the universe to be different than it is, than what Scripture says it is. But denying the truth doesn't change the truth, and believing lies is unhealthy. Unfortunately, what John is trying to teach us is that it's highly likely that you can find people who are going to preach messages that you like, who are going to speak your language, who are going to use Scripture and tell you that God is the way you want Him to be, that you are the way you want you to be, that the universe is the way you want it to be, and they're going to say the right things, it's going to come in the right packaging, but that doesn't matter. You have to realize that spiritual junk food exists. You can likely find teachers who call themselves Christians, who quote the Bible, and say spiritual-sounding things that you like, but that simply doesn't mean that they are teaching the truth. We have to be aware of this. That's what John is talking about. Amen. At this time, I'm going to ask the men to come forward, and we are going to move to our time for communion.